Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good to go. We're good to go. Yeah. Well, this one is entitled. Let's just go straight in. We said we'd be really quick tonight because I've got to go to the cobblers and you're going up north. Right. It's entitled The Ooyahs. Yeah. You read it. Hi, both. I was listening to yesterday's podcast where Jane was regaling us with the tale of her sleepless night in a Plymouth hotel and Fee was recounting her noisy night after checking into a hotel where they rent rooms by the hour. I thought I'd share my experience of being kept awake in a similar fashion by a young Dutch couple who we named the Ooyars. I was backpacking around the world with my good friend Roz in 1990. This is from Wendy, by the way. Uh, we spent some time in Bali where we rented a bamboo hut and enjoyed the then limited cuisine which included every meal featuring bananas from banana pancakes to fritters to porridge to smoothies and occasionally just good old plain bananas. The huts we stayed in at the guest house were a sort of terraced affair with a thin bamboo wall separating us from our neighbours. Every night, thankfully, it was only three, we were awakened at about 4am with the sound of ooh-yah in a high-pitched voice followed by Oh, yeah, in a deep masculine one. These two retorts kept going for about 15 minutes with differing levels and lengths of the oohs and the yaws. And most amusing was when there was an ooh <laughs> followed by a very long pause before the yeah. yeah. I see. I'm out of practice. Uh, we might as well have been in the same room as the noises. It allowed us to imagine exactly what was happening. I've just retired from nearly 40 years of teaching in quite challenging comprehensive schools and I'm loving being able to listen to you two on a more regular basis. Yep, leave teaching behind. Just listen to podcasts. <laughs> Wendy, that's fantastic. Ooh! Yeah. Oh, I shall never think of the Dutch in any other way again. No, I'll never think of the Dutch in the same way again. Sorry, it's been a long Do week. Do you ever think of the Dutch? <laughs> Yes, I do. <laughs> Very frequently. I'm always meeting people who say, I've just got, have you been to the Soho House in Amsterdam? No, I haven't! Right, uh, April says, uh, I am to Maidstone as Jane is to Plymouth. <laughs> I had a very similar experience to your Plymouth and St Petersburg nocturnal disturbances. I can't believe that sex has happened in Maidstone. My God. Well, on a short break in Maidstone a couple of years ago, we were awoken not once but twice by extremely noisy sex from the room next to ours. 
The difference between my experience and yours is that we had a 21-month-old and a 3-month-old with us, the latter of whom I was still breastfeeding. Sleep being an extremely short supply for all of us at that time and having been terribly British and politely ignored the deafening noises during their first round, I wasted no time when things got going for a second time in hammering my fists on the wall and yelling in no uncertain terms that they need to shut the... Insert expletive here up. Relations ceased, but I just lay awake seething for hours afterwards. I'm sorry to hear that, April. I mean, it can't be easy, can it? You're trying to breastfeed a, a three-month-old and the noise of shenanigans, shenanigans, it's just not good, is it? Really it's not, no. no. I did wonder, I was thinking about your naval base experiences in Plymouth there, uh, and do you think that that might have had something to do with it? You know, if you're, if you're coming in off the ships... <laughs> It's been a long time <laughs> since you've seen your wonderful partner. Oh. Maybe it's just a city of love. Is that where I just went wrong? I should have, I should have just spent time at sea. It's not too late. <laughs> you, could, you could be the intrepid investigative explorer on one of our submarines. That, well, yes, because we were talking about... Because yeah. I am fascinated by this, this British submarine that has just come back to the surface after, an, to me, an astonishing six months below it's not decks is it no below the water below the water yeah. six months i find myself feeling quite uh unwell actually yeah, whenever I'm, well, I'm you say you. that yeah yeah but, i mean you know you go so you go down in march you know what what are you doing on august the 13th yeah you know how do you mark the passage of time when you're in such a confined space it properly gives me the giggles no, i mean if anyone listening has even the slightest idea of what it's like to be a submariner or what it's like to be the partner of a submariner and not be able to make contact with them have any kind of contact with them for 6 months i mean i know this is an unusually long period of time that they were they were under the sea but um it just seems quite quite remarkable it to does. me yeah. to be honest even if you just swim a whole length underwater we'll take an anecdote from that yeah. Uh, this one comes from Eleanor Sykes, who says, Dear Fee and Jane, this is apropos of your podcast yesterday where you commented about what it must be like for teachers when children start in reception and those who may not be fully continent. Well, that is definitely an issue, and it's more of an issue when you have to teach little boys how to use the urinals. I taught reception for many years, and every September would entail me trooping into the boys' loo with 15 or so four-year-old boys and pretending I had a willy to show them how to use the urinal, how to point it correctly, and so on. It was more or less successful, but I remember well the year when I found a huge poo sitting in the urinal in instead few more lessons yes. oh Anna, darling uh do you know what we ask a lot of our teachers we really do we really do yeah. and pretending to have a willy and trying to teach four-year-old boys how to pee straight well i mean kudos to you i hope you get an mbe at the very least and i'm sorry about the poo thing uh, yes. thank you for being in touch with us i suppose you have to be absolutely explicit don't you this is this is what you use to do a wee but yeah, I think the, the urinal thing. thing's very interesting though mm. because so few people, apart from actually your ex-husband, have a urinal in their <laughs> in their house. <laughs> please he don't. Does, please, don't I know, but don't revisit that. Okay, <laughs> but most people don't have urinals at home. So how is your school age boy? You know, suddenly yeah, really meant point. to know, and and also, I don't think I'd be alone in this. I've got a, a son and a daughter. It was always me taking my son as a tiny toddler mm -hmm. to the loo and the ladies. Yeah. 
So I'm not sure that he had seen very many urinals before he went to school. Mm. So you might not know exactly what it is that you do. Uh, well, you wouldn't, would you, no. in fairness? No. Uh, well, I have to say, this is niche, but fascinating. <laughs> uh, Jane and Fee at <laughs> times.radio. Wish you hadn't mentioned that bloody urinal. Anyway, uh, Anna says, uh, I'm writing in response to something you mentioned earlier in the week about seeing all the year sevens on their way to school. My daughter started year seven last week, and it just occurred to me what a tough stage in any girl's life it is to have such a huge upheaval. Talking to my mum about it, we said we couldn't believe anybody thought it was a good idea to make 11 year olds leave everything they know, overwhelm them with new systems, knowledge and expectations, and in many cases do this whilst leaving lots or all of their friends. There has to be a better way, surely, says Anna. Well, it's not just girls, is it? I mean, I did see a couple of really sweet young boys making their way to um, their new secondary schools as well earlier this week when I was out and about early. Do you know, I can still remember the terror of my first week at secondary school because, like most people at primary school, we just stayed in the same classroom room and I don't have a very good sense of direction and I'm a sort of I just get very easily confused by logistics as you know and I just kept going to the wrong place I couldn't understand this business of moving around the school for lessons and I still think about it and obviously it's been a while now since I started secondary school I'm more or less over it yeah so I, I think that's maybe why I just look at these these kids and I just feel oh god I hope you're okay it does get easier doesn't it yeah some of them are just still so tiny they as well are. year yeah. seven is that weird one where you'll have you know weeny weeny little people yeah. and then you'll have some who've already shot up to about you know nearly six foot tall yeah and they're all bumbling along together aren't they mm. you know quite slowly with the slightly painful new shoes on yeah this week and you do you just want to hold them very close and wish them all the best mm. of luck uh this one came in from rob actually earlier on during the week uh, so i hope you're still listening rob uh, i'm one of those as you say rare chaps who listen regularly to your chat slash conversation slash wittering delete is applicable bit rude and enjoy it well most of it anyway i was caught by your anecdote i can't say whose it was because you're a bit like ant and deck we're not we're so very very different and subsequent chat about the lost child i'm an ex-teacher 14 years before the mast what does that mean uh we're serving before the mast it's like it's a naval term (laughs) yes I should know. You have been in the watery intelligence service, haven't you? You know a lot about it. Served alongside Paddy Ashton. You're very, you're very across Plymouth late at night. This is all adding up well, to you something. You know about my isn't visit it? to that place in Cheltenham. I, I have heard yeah. tell of that. Yep. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry I didn't know that term. Uh, so Rob is 14 years before the mast, ex cub leader, a father of two, and a grandfather of four. But things would have to be pretty bad before I approached a child I didn't know, such as the zeitgeist now that almost any male approaching a child in the street or anywhere else is in danger of having his motives questioned. A uniform, police, scoutmaster or nurse may be some protection, but otherwise many chaps would feel like me and avoid the situation. I was a little surprised you didn't bring this factor into your chat. Uh, Well, thank you for bringing it into the chat yourself, Rob. And I suppose, do you know what, I really hadn't thought enough about that, actually. Mm. And I know that the advice that I've given to my kids, I mean, they're older now, but when they were younger was absolutely that if they were distressed or felt in danger, they should head to, uh, I always used to say, find a woman with a buggy, Mm. you know, because I just kind of would say that that's the safest person who's going to be in your zone. And, And I know that my advice has always been don't head for the single man. 
No. So you're, you're right and to say that, Rob. You are right. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to say it. But, yeah. Um, and and you are so the right person who would be able to help a kid out in trouble. Mm. And I wonder whether we ever get to a time in society where this email would make no sense. It would be nice to think that we will. It would be really nice. Um, let's just brief mention to Zoe. Hello, Zoe, in Fort Worth. I could listen to Clive Myrie all day long, she says. What a voice. Uh, Jane briefly mentioned the novel The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. That audiobook is read by Tom Hanks, and it is the most perfect pairing of text and voice I have experienced in all my audiobook listening. Sounds like a recommendation, doesn't it? Thank you for that, Irene. Oh, Zoe, rather. Zoe Irene is her full name. Thank you for listening all the way over there yeah. in Fort Worth. And actually, it must be remarkable because it's come up with quite a few other listeners too. Henrietta wanted to say it's Tom Hanks doing The Dutch House. So it's obviously stuck with people. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, and Henrietta's with me on the pesto. Both my son and I overdosed on pesto when he was a baby and neither of us can stomach it. He's now 15. I think there's a gap in the market for adult pesto. And it's literally called that. It has to taste different, not quite as sweet and oily. Adult pesto. All right. Market it. Go away. Make your fortune. I want to hear from Robert Peston. Nearly Robert <laughs> Pesto, but not. Right, take it away, girlfriend. He's got, he's got a beautiful voice. He's ITV's political... Well, he's got a voice. He's ITV's political editor, formerly of the Financial Times, uh, also been a, a big old noise at the BBC as well, business editor and economics editor. Somehow, we don't know how, he's found time to come up with another of his pacey thrillers. This one is called The Crash. It's ten years on from his first book, The Whistleblower. And uh, essentially, it is about a uh, maverick very well-connected journo called Gil Peck, who darts all over London, talking to all his top contacts on one of those Brompton bikes. Fee and I are pretty much of the view that this could basically be Robert Peston himself, but who knows? Anyway, here is Robert Peston. Lovely to see you. Very nice to see you. Thank you very much for coming on the programme. Now, The Crash is set a decade after your first novel, The Whistleblower, uh, but the central character is still the same. It's Gil Peck, but he's moved out of the dirty world of newspapers and into broadcasting. And um, how is he finding it? Uh, he's having an exciting time uh in, in the sense that there's quite a big story that he's chasing he's slightly obsessed with getting scoops and he's quite obsessed with the business of being a journalist and so the collapse or you know what he thinks is a period in which banks are banks are going to collapse and we're all going to pay a big price for their recklessness well you know I, I imagine, like all of us at the time, he was sort of felt this was all a bit sad for the UK, but it kept him very busy and he likes being busy. Now, um, at the time of the financial crash, crash in 2007, just remind everybody what your role was. Yeah, I sort of assumed you'd ask uh, or remind people. I mean, so weirdly, I was also at a leading broadcaster um, trying to get scoops about the crash. Right. Uh, so obviously that, Fee and I have already discussed the fact that we are bound to ask you, uh, is Gil Peck a not so heavily disguised Robert Peston? No, uh, but there are lots of things about Gil Peck that I have experienced and there are certain of his character traits that are my character traits. But no, it's not a sort of um, disguised uh, autobiography. Uh, it is um, a bit of fun, actually. Uh, I mean, 
I can't, I can't remember. I think I might have talked to you about uh, the whistleblower um, when it came out, which, as you say, was sort of part one. And I just sort of took the view since I've come to sort of fiction writing and thriller writing late in life that it would be probably sensible to minimise at least some of the risks of, you know, going into an area that was sort of relatively new to me. And I just therefore thought, why not write about worlds that I know intimately? Yeah. Uh, uh, and and I thought that way uh, I could at least make it feel authentic. Sure. Um, yeah. But I guess, I guess the problem with that is that, yes, you do know this world intimately, but frankly, the rest of us don't. And there's a there's a level of detail um, and there's an intricacy to some of that detail. It, it needs explaining, doesn't it, in plain English, which is one of the problems you have when you write a book like this, I guess. I suppose so. I mean, I've been quite I mean, I, I, I mean, if you're saying you hated it because, uh, you know, bits of it were. Uh, about bits of the city that you didn't find very interesting, and you didn't, you weren't, you know, you 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 weren't um, intrigued to sort of learn more. Then I can only apologise to you. Um, I mean, what I tried to do was, um, you know, as I say, it, it, it's it's got to be compelling, and it's compel it's got to be compelling in two ways. One, it's got to be entertaining and fast paced, and there's got to be lots of action and mystery and all the rest of it. And I hope there's that in this book. Mm. Um, but equally. Um, it can't be stupid. No, I mean, no, I didn't. Can't... I didn't dislike it at all, Robert. I thought it was a proper page turner, to be honest. But I, I, can we just get on to the to the fact that your character Gill, um, he's kind of put off the story by his employers because, or at least there's an attempt by the banks, frankly, to steer him away from doing the story. So, did that happen to you? How much pressure were you under at the time of the crash to, frankly, keep your trap shut? Uh, so there were sort of. There are, there are a couple of aspects of, of this. I mean, one is I, I about nine months before everything went bad. Um, I did. I was a little bit frustrated because I went to see there was a particular senior editor at the BBC. Uh, I went to see and I just said, look, I think, you know, we are going to have a crash and uh, uh, it, it is going to be, you know, not only bad for the city, but because of the central role that um, all these institutions play in our lives, it's going to you know, lead to recession, going to damage us. And this individual said, well, wh you know, when's it going to happen? And I said, well, the problem with crashes is um, you can see the direction of travel that you're going in, that they're going to happen at some point, but, uh, you know, forecasting with precision when it'll happen, well, you know, that's more art. It's more art. It's not a science. And this particular editor said, oh, well, look, I mean, you know, it can therefore, you know, you can hold this story. <laughs> uh, so that was that. But but so, um, but then actually, you know, because the BBC um, was a place that was incredibly interested in exploring, I think, quite challenging things. They then did let me do some broadcasting mm. on the crash actually happened after I did the Northern Rock story. Then that's when the heat got turned up, and it got turned up very considerably. Um, people sort of wrongly, you know, blamed me. That you know, they blamed the messenger. They blamed me for the run at Northern Rock after I disclosed that it had run out of money and gone, you know, capping out for the Bank of England for support. And at that point, yeah, I mean, you know. Um, powerful you know people in the city senior bankers uh head of the trade association the british bankers association you know ministers regulators uh they rang up the 
BBC spoke to the director general, spoke to the director of news, said close Peston down. This is all too dangerous. British people, it's too, this is all too too difficult and scary for British people. This is, you know, they actually use the analogy of a time of war. And, you know, they said there should, there should be a, the equivalent of a denotice and I shouldn't be allowed to tell the world um, how much trouble our banks were in. I have to say, um, Mark Thompson, who was director general at the time and Helen Bergen, who was director of news, were um, both actually um you know really sort of tough and told these people that you know the work that i we were doing was very much in the public interest people mm. had to know what was going on and told them all to hop off uh, and uh you know there's been there's been quite a lot of talk recently that bbc maybe doesn't have enough backbone it certainly had backbone then and i'm forever grateful to both helen and uh Mark, for letting me do my job. Can you just explain what a D-notice is? Because not everybody will know that term. So a D-notice is a notice that, that at a time, particularly of war, um, you know, essentially is issued to media organisations to basically stop them reporting on information that um, could be damaging to the security of the UK. And, you know, there was genuinely an active debate at the time because... Um, the stakes were very high economically about trying to persuade, as I say, people like me not to tell British people quite the sort of scale of the reckless things that the bankers had done. What does come across in the book, certainly Gil Peck's world, is one of, well, it's actually it's a cabal of people who were all at Oxford together and have all risen to prominent positions at sort of around the same time. And they're absolutely hideous, pretty much all of them. Uh, and there are some, some quite debauched parties that you describe. Um, this is a very, very depressing view of Britain. I mean, Robert, is this still how Britain is run? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, obviously, when you write a book of this sort, you make it probably a little bit more extreme than the reality but yeah i mean you know this place was run is run uh by people who certainly went to the same university in some cases as we know uh in recent times went to one school in particular um and it is you know the elite in this country is a genuine elite um and yeah they do all know each other and i think some of the morality i mean you know in both books there's a lot of very dodgy morality and i'm afraid that does describe um quite a lot of how powerful people behave and do you consider yourself part of that i mean this is a incredibly difficult question i mean my I've never considered myself part of some uh, uh, elite in the sense of, uh, of of somebody who sort of, you know, wants to run things. I have always considered myself to be somebody who shines a light on the world, tries to explain the world um, to, uh, you know, the, the, the people who either, you know, watch my broadcasts, organise the newspapers, read my newspaper articles, you know, I've got a I've got a new podcast which I might as well promote. Listen to listen to the new podcast. Look, I can't deny that having been to Oxford myself, that that can you know that that you know it it opens doors. Um, you know, I know I know all sorts of you know partly through having gone to that university, all sorts of people who I probably wouldn't have met if I'd gone a different route. I, um, and you know, I went to a North London comprehensive. Did I think? I mean, some some you know when I was 
I mean, weirdly, when I was 10 or 11, partly because I was obsessed with history and the master of Balliol was a particular historian that I admired, pretty much from the age of 10 or 11, despite the fact that I went to this North London Comprehensive, I was pretty sure I wanted to go to Balliol College, Oxford, and that's where I ended up. But I, 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 I didn't go there thinking that I was going to meet all these people who would end up running the country. No, but it did sort of slightly turn out that way. And the weird thing about the Oxbridge thing is that even if... I mean, there were some some of my contemporaries um, obviously ended up in positions of some uh, importance, but just weirdly, just uh, you know, it is a it is, and I, I'm afraid all do, you know you get the same thing in France, you get the same thing in America. Um, there is just it's a, it's a part of the inequalities and the unfairnesses of this world is you know you end up at a particular university and it sort of introduces you to a network of people that you know undoubtedly are pretty helpful uh in well, terms yes. of whatever, whatever whatever you end up doing it and, does seem and, to work that way yeah i mean you you actually mentioned well, it, it's, 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 you know it's, it's just another one of those awful unfairnesses yeah um in an interview with the times actually with andrew billen a couple of days ago you actually said that rishi sunak was better informed about financial matters than his predecessors um he's obviously got a lot of experience he worked for goldman sachs didn't he and he might be working for them again and for, and for, a, and for a hedge fund yeah yeah no, um but i mean is there any evidence at all that his clearly his, his profound knowledge of the subject is actually benefiting us as, as a country well i think uh this is not a very profound thought that uh, you know a prime minister who does the work and reads the documents and you know thinks uh more deeply about uh uh, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the issue is, I, I think that's a better thing rather than a worse thing. And he definitely does the work. I mean, I, you know, my uh, job is to be impartial and, you know, that you, you, we can all have views about the effectiveness. I mean, you can have ideological views about whether his policies are good or bad, and then you can have views about whether they're effective or not. And, you know, I think we could argue at the moment that his policy on... Um, reducing the number of people risking their lives coming across in small boats is not working very well. I mean, to be frank, since large numbers are still coming across mm. in small boats and we've got this sort of massive problem of a lot of stateless people here growing by the day, not, not able to work, somewhat sort of stranded. It's, you know, you could argue this is a very, very bad phenomenon Um and so you can, you know, I'm very happy to judge policies on the basis of whether they work or not. But I can tell you that, you know, whether, you know, whether it's a good or bad policy. And um, as I say, it's definitely not working very well at the moment. But um, I mean, also, we're at a strange place when we when you um, decide that because Mr. Sunak puts in the work, he's perhaps perhaps a little bit better than some of his immediate predecessors, because it's I mean, why, it's why the least not? I expect. I mean, I want them to. They've, they've pursued positions of power. The least they can do when they get there is put the hours in, surely. Yeah, I mean, you know, you would say you would think that, wouldn't you? But you know, we've 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 lived through a time when you couldn't necessarily take that for granted. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just five dollars. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. 
Robert Peston, who's got a new novel out. It's called The Crash. Uh, he is, of course, ITN's political editor. So, Robert, do you think um, it is inevitable that Labour will win the next election? Oh, nothing is remotely ever inevitable uh, in this particular uh, period of our history. Uh, it is astonishing how fast public opinion can shift, and it's also astonishing um, how people are acting in ways that we thought they wouldn't do. Um, so I, I, it's definitely not inevitable, but um, it is also incredibly uh, difficult for a government to win an election having um, been in office and overseen both chaos, some would say, of its own making, and we're thinking obviously of this trust's mini budget, um, and uh, having... Um, had a prime minister who held uh, illegal parties in Downing Street and uh, having right now a period of economic stagnation, high inflation, squeezes in living standards that are leaving, uh, you know, millions of mm. people in, you know, pretty rum, old, difficult state so um and then you know you've had opinion polls that have shown labor of significantly ahead 15 16 percentage points now for a good year or so so i mean you know as i say i it's um very likely that labor will win the general election but you know if i were keir starmer um uh, you know, I wouldn't be engaging in hubris, no. Uh, and um, he's up against it in the sense that there's a limit to what he can actually say, isn't there? <laughs> Which is why he's not saying a great deal. Uh, we don't actually know what too many of their policies are going to be because it's he's doing that thing about, what is it, carrying the Ming vase across a, across a sitting room or something? Yeah, I mean, look, I do think that um, he could probably, uh, you know, and maybe he is now beginning to to do this. He could probably show a little bit more about what he stands for and what he's going to do. I mean, you know, uh, you know, only in the last uh, twenty four hours we have seen him come up with a different kind of immigration policy from the one that um, Rishi Sunak uh, has adopted and taken some risks in terms of talking about closer cooperation with the EU and uh, actually ending this position of uh, making it completely impossible for any asylum seeker who'd cross the channel to apply for asylum. So, you know, he is taking some risks and, you know, maybe that'll continue. So maybe we will know a little bit more about who he is and what they stand for. And we've got about a year to go. Um, Things like the triple lock, which are of huge interest, actually. Um, What on earth can any government do about that that doesn't just put off potential voters? I mean, the problem with 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 um, sort of rational debate about so much of this stuff is, you know, we, you know, all parties want to win elections, and older people tend to be the people who vote, as you know. Um, and one of the reasons I'm absolutely certain that uh, the government will, you know, or the you know Conservative Party under Rishi Sunak will put the renewal of the triple lock into their manifesto is um, Rishi Sunak needs votes. Uh, he doesn't want to alienate older people. I mean, I think there are sort of two things, though, to say about the triple lock, which slightly pull in in different directions. Um, One is um, that, yes, uh, it has been very expensive uh, and will become even more expensive um, uh, at a time when there's um, 
you know, public finances are frankly in a mess uh, and, you know, quite a serious mess. Um, and I think it's the IFS has calculated that the triple lock could add um, something like £45 billion pounds to public spending uh, by 2050. So in, that's in real terms. That's a lot of money. Uh, on the other, and, and, and it's also true that relative to younger people, um, older people have done very well out of government. Uh, policy over the last uh, sort of 13, 14, 15 years. Uh, pension has gone up about 14% in real terms, while benefits for people of working age have fallen 9% in, in, in real terms. So you, but on the other hand, it's not that long ago. I mean, you know, you, you, you may remember that in the 80s and 90s, pensioner poverty was a very, very serious problem in this country. And it's a good thing that pensioner poverty, poverty has been eradicated. I think the challenge is not to force, is, you know, the, 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 the goal can't be to, you know, allow pensioners to fall back into poverty. The goal has got to be how do you lift working age people mm. out of poverty? That's got to be the ambition. So, Robert, you've worked in these two huge fields of importance in terms of policies. You've worked across finance and you've worked across politics itself. But for most of us, what money boils down to is just how much we can hang on to, how much we can mm. earn in our lifetime. So if somebody gave you £10,000, what would you do with it at the moment, given all of that exquisite wisdom? Um, can I just ask you a question? Is, is this ten? Is, is this ten thousand? It's your own money, Robert. <laughs> yeah. to... I'm not saying I'm going to give you ten thousand pounds. Let's just be clear about that. No, no, no. But I mean, I'm just saying, is this? Is this? So, because it always depends on whether this is ten thousand pounds that you can sort of lock away and 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 and, and not worry about. As well, it I were. suppose I'm asking you to look across the world at everything that's happening. Look at all of the I mean, uncertainty. Where would you put it? I put it into some aspect of artificial intelligence. I mean, I'm very, very excited about uh, what is undoubtedly a big industrial revolution that we're just starting. Um, it's going to transform the world of work, um, and it could uh, actually do something about the, the the biggest problem that m many Western countries have. In fact, got yet another book coming out in a few weeks, which is called Bust, and which is looking at essentially big problems that the UK and other Western countries are facing in terms of our living standards and public services and just, you know, the mess we're in. Uh, also the political crises, many of us, many, many countries are in, including the UK. Um, and, you know, artificial intelligence is both exciting and scary. It, 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 does, it does offer the potential to give us greater growth, but it could also lead to very significant job losses. It could also allow, it proliferates, uh, uh, it, 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 it could allow very bad people to create, you know, chemical weapons and, you know, various weapons of mass destruction from their uh, garages. So it has to be regulated very well. Um, we're a long way from seeing that kind of regulation. So, you know, it's, you know, it's it's a really big social and yeah. economic change that we're, we're that we're starting with. And if you were just looking for something, to, if, you know, if you're genuinely saying, well, where would you put your money? You would put your money into some aspect of all of this that's going to benefit from, from artificial right. intelligence. Well, thank you for that. That's a tip I'll write down. Just very briefly, um, you did come out uh, with a very supportive statement about Hugh Edwards at the time of his suspension. I know you work very closely with his wife. How is he? Is he all right? Uh, do you know what? He's a friend. She's a friend. I'm really, that's, that's their private life. I'm not going to get into any of that. Okay. I mean, other than to say, you know, you've got to stand by your friends and I do stand by them. 
That was Robert Peston, and he's still um, very much a big noise in journalism, looking forward, I'm sure, to the next 12 months, which are likely to be pretty hectic in his world. Pretty hectic in our world too, eh, Fee? Because <laughs> What's a link, lady? Because <laughs> next week we're doing a book club podcast, and I am hugely enjoying... Oh, no, I can't really say that because it uh, gives too much away. I am reading uh, the latest book we're doing, My Sister, the Serial Killer. Actually, it's My Sister, comma, the Serial Killer, I noticed, by Oinka, Oinka Braithwaite. Uh, but we need your intervention. It's voice notes, emails and DMs, please, on the gram before the 22nd of September. September. Of September that, of that month. Well, Mrs. See you in Devon. Uh, it's at Jane and Fee. <laughs> if you'd like to put any of those missives up, uh, and uh, the whole point of book club uh, is it's a book chosen by you to be discussed by you and just vaguely manhandled by us. Uh, so we will look forward to all of your thoughts. We've got a bumper week coming up next week. What's going to be your highlight? Well, I'm really enjoying Rory Kathleen Jones's book about his mom because she worked as a secretary at the BBC and then worked her way up, but she was disregarded. She was treated a bit like crap by idiotic... Actually, you know what, Fee? It's it's all too familiar uh, in lots of ways. But she was a woman working at the BBC in the 40s and 50s, and it just wasn't easy. And she was a single mum to Rory and his older brother, half-brother, and times were a bit tough. So it's really interesting. Yeah, looking forward to meeting him again. Uh, Michelle Rue's on the programme too. The comedian London Hughes, one of our favourites as well. And Trini Woodall is here with us next week too. So it really is top layer of the chocolate box next week. And we hope you can join us. Enjoy your weekend. I hope you'll get some sleep. Ooh, yeah. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go onto Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com